question for you as we begin on the message part of our worship experience. What brings you delight? When we think of delight, we think of that feeling of immense or intense pleasure, kind of blended with a bit of contentment that washes over us in certain circumstances, when we're with certain people, when we eat certain food. Uh, what is it that brings you delight? Maybe as we, we, we think about delight, maybe it's for you, it's sitting around that, that, that campfire or that fire on your back deck, the fire pit, and uh, it's a cool evening but not too cool, and the stars are in the sky, and you've got uh, just the right beverage, a sweet tea, a Coke, your water in hand, and uh, you're just resting in that moment. Maybe for you, it's, it's delight as you watch uh, children at play, your children or nieces and nephews. What is it that brings you delight? Uh, all of us have something or probably many some things that bring us delight. And so what is that for you? I think as I look out to Thanksgiving here in just a few days, uh, it's likely that for many in this room and some of you online, you're, you're anticipating eating certain foods that bring delight. We, we have a way of kind of saving certain foods for uh, our big holidays. And so uh, maybe for you, it's the stuffing that brings delight. Are there any stuffing fans in the room? Is that stuffing with meat or without meat? You can figure that out, right? Um, maybe it's the corn casserole, the corn pudding that brings you delight. Maybe it's the, the sweet potatoes or the sweet potato casserole. Maybe it's the mashed potatoes. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the ham. Maybe it's the turkey. We can just do a quick survey. How many ham fans do we have over turkey? All right, it's ham. How many turkey over ham people do we have, okay? You're the ones that are asleep like an hour after dinner because you ate so much turkey. Um, but what brings you delight uh, when it comes to Thanksgiving. What dishes bring you delight? I know in our family, chicken and noodles have been a, a big delight for us. I grew up, Audrey did not grow up that way. I grew up having chicken and noodles every single Thanksgiving. My mom would make them homemade noodles. I, I'd see the chicken in the pressure cooker and you hoped it didn't explode. That was before the Instapot. And then uh, she would pick the meat off and it was just this beautiful labor of love. And if you mixed chicken and noodles, mom's homemade chicken and noodles with her homemade mashed potatoes that had butter and cream cheese and salt and all that healthy stuff in it, and you put put those together, oh man, that was a recipe for delight. Or maybe you're more of a dessert person. Uh, maybe it's the pumpkin pie or the pecan pie or the apple pie that brings you delight. Or maybe at Thanksgiving for you, it's not the food at all that brings you delight. Maybe it's the people that you're with. Uh, maybe it's the family that's together or the friends or the neighbors that bring you delight. Maybe it's a combination of those and maybe the experiences. Some of you have traditions on Thanksgiving. You watch the same movie or you can't wait for the football game or, or maybe you go outside and you have a, a family challenge, whether it's raining, snowing, sun shining, it doesn't matter. Maybe that's what brings you delight. Or maybe it's just you sitting back and watching the people you love the most, enjoying them and their company. Maybe that's what brings you to light, delight. What, what brings you delight? Even thinking beyond Thanksgiving, what brings you delight? I want you to kind of get a sense of what you feel in those moments when delight kind of washes over you and covers over you. And I want to follow it up with this question. And before I give you this question, please understand this question is to invite you to consider. It's not going to be used as a weapon in any way. I just think we'll be healthier as we go through this message if we think about it. Do you delight 
in the words of Scripture, the words of God, as much or more than the delight you feel for these other things? That's a challenging question to me. I think it's a challenging thought. I think especially if you're in our room or you're watching and you're just curious about faith, maybe you're a little skeptical of faith, uh, you, you may consider the idea that the words of God that you may have seen used as a weapon or used to hurt people, the fact that, that these words could bring delight for you, it's a little far-fetched. Like, are you serious? These, these can bring delight? These can bring as much delight as, as, as an apple pie? Like, even more delight than an apple like, These can do that? And I bet if we were really honest, there are several that are followers of Jesus or consider themselves followers of Jesus and Christians who maybe ask the very same questions. Really? Like, these words, these words inspired by the Spirit over generations that have held up over literally thousands of years, like these, these can bring delight? And my hope is that over the next 25 minutes or so, we can take you on a journey where you can see why and how we can delight in the words of Scripture. We're going to be hanging out in Psalm 119 this morning. We'll, we'll bridge out to a couple other psalms and then to one passage in the New Testament, but primarily Psalm 119. And a recurring refrain, a repeated word in Psalm 119 is the word delight. Now, originally, this psalmist, who we don't know who the psalmist was, um, I tend to think it was probably David, and I'll give you those reasons later. But the psalmist, who we don't know their identity, uses this word delight. Now, obviously, that psalmist did not speak English. These words were written hundreds upon hundreds of years ago. But the word in Hebrew meant to wash over or smear over with, with pleasure, and so our English translators said, what, what is that in our language that expresses that same thing? And so that answer is delight. And so we translate this word that the psalmist uses nine times into delight. And so nine times in 176 verses, the psalmist speaks of delight. Now, the whole theme of Psalm 119 are the instructions of, the whole theme is the instructions of God. Like, the psalmist is celebrating how great and how incredible God's words are. And so every context for this expression of delight is the psalmist saying that he delights in the words and the instructions of God. And it's not just that the psalmist declares that God's words bring him delight, but the psalm in itself is an expression of delight. Let me explain. If you're an artist in the room, you know that it is delight that drives you to the canvas and to the sketchbook and to the clay. If you're an artist, you know that it's delight that, that, that makes you want to discipline yourself, to memorize the lines and to, to sing the song. It's, it's a delight. Something in you leads, that delight leads to that expression of art. The composer knows that it's delight that causes them to sit on the uh, uh, piano and, and, and work the keys or, or the strings on the guitar to create a masterpiece. It's an expression of delight. And this poem that we have, Psalm 119, this psalm, it is that. It's a labor of delight. I've shared some of the details about the psalm before, so you may recall some of them. 
Psalm 119, 176 verses. Those 176 verses are divided into 22 sections that we might call stanzas. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each of those 22 sections, each of the eight lines, they all have eight lines. In our Bibles, they have eight verses. Each of those eight lines begin with the, letter of the, the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, for example, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph, the first eight verses of Psalm 119 in the original language all start with Aleph. And then it goes on and moves the second section, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Like, like there's meticulous like planning and plotting. It's this artistic endeavor. Uh, in, in, in the psalm, the psalmist uses at least eight words to describe what we would call the words of God. I can't remember all of them. Among them are law and precepts and rules and testimonies and ways and promises, commandments. They, they, they express the words of God. They're not different things. It's like when we would talk about, if you're a, if you're a soccer player, uh, you may call it a soccer field or someone may call it a soccer pitch. The pitch and the field, they're the same thing. Laws, commandments, precepts, they're the same thing. They're describing the words of God, but by large, the, the, the one that occurs most often is the word law. We have the expression, your laws or the law of the Lord. And that's significant both for the psalmist and for us. That word law is our English translation of a Hebrew word, Torah. That word means instruction. I think it's 56 times in 176 verses that word occurs, and the psalmist is saying, the instructions of the Lord bring him delight, bring him joy, strengthen him, encourage him. The instructions of God. And why this is important for the psalmist is when the psalmist looked back, and all the psalmist would have had were the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When that psalmist looks at the early writings that God had inspired, he sees them as instructions. This is a loving God. This is a caring God. This is a God who made me and, and wants to help me. And so he instructs me and he teaches me to guide me to experience the fullness of what he has planned for me. Why is it important for us? Because we often go to our Bibles and we read them, we see the word law, and we have an initial negative association. Because in our freedom-loving country, laws are limitations, or laws are things that governing leaders who we're not sure we can trust create with a bunch of other people we're not sure we can trust. And so we're apprehensive about laws. And so inevitably we come to the scriptures and we hear the psalmist say, the law of the Lord brings delight or is pleasing. And we think to ourselves, nah, God's probably got something he's working on. Or maybe he doesn't have my best interests at heart. Or maybe he wants to limit me. And we have to train ourselves to see that that never would have been an association that the psalmist would have made because these were the instructions of a loving God, a caring God that wanted to help his people be informed about how to live and to, to find their place in his story and to see all that he had done for them. And if you and I can come to the place where when we see the word law in scripture, when we look at all of scripture as being the expression of a loving God to teach us how to live, and to find our place in his story, to understand what it took to have a place in his story. 
that he would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die for our sin and to rise again to give us an everlasting hope. It would change the way we come to God's word. And I think that if we could come to God's word, seeing as his instruction, the instruction of loving God, we come to the place of incredible delight. We would see that these words do bring incredible joy and hope and life. Thinking of food for a moment, we talked about that at the beginning. I want to share with you an expression that what we've been hoping to get across in these last three weeks, focusing on the word of God and spiritual disciplines that help us uh, get God's word into us and live it out, uh, is that the word of God really is more than just words. It's more than words on a screen. It's more than words on a page. It's so much more. We've seen how it's a light, how it's a sword, and in this week, how it's something to delight in. But the image I want you to have today is that of honey. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's an exclamation that God's words are sweet and incredible, sweeter than honey. Now, I think that some of that is lost on us. Uh, we live now in a world of uh, cane sugar, refined sugar, stevia, artificial sweeteners. We live in a world of ice cream and chocolate chip cookies and cinnamon rolls. And so we have all kinds of sweet around us. And so oftentimes when we think of the sweetest things, our mind probably doesn't first go to honey. But for the psalmist, honey was a treasure. Uh, honey was incredible. Think of the description that was given to the early Israelites of what the promised land would be. It would be a land flowing with milk and what? Honey. It was expressing that there is this treasure to be found. There is this great thing to be found. So the psalmist is saying, God, your words are incredible. They are sweeter. They bring more delight than the sweetest thing that I know. Uh, perhaps you're one of those rare human beings that doesn't have a sweet tooth. But if you're like a lot of the rest of us, uh, there are few things that bring me more delight than something really sweet. Uh, we were this week at uh, Costco and bought an apple pie, and the boys and I in three days ate the apple pie. And I got to tell you, uh, there was a whole lot of delight happening uh, in, in my mouth. The, the psalmist says God's words are sweeter than honey. Now, this is expression isn't unique here. It shows up in Psalm 19, verse 10. We know Psalm 19.10 is attributed to David, and so I, that's part of the reason I tend to think that Psalm 119 comes from him as well. There's so many similar expressions. But in Psalm 19.10, here's what David writes. He says, they are more precious. He's speaking of the decrees of the Lord. That's what he's just mentioned in verse 9. Those decrees are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. There's a family in our church, we have a few families that have, I think you call them apiaries, They're, they have bees and harvest honey, and uh, they gave me one of their honeycombs on loan. Um, I don't know if you've ever had honey straight from the comb, this is, this is some of their honey, I've, I've not tried it, uh, there was a limited supply, but I, but I have helped a friend harvest honey before, and as we spun the honey from the comb, a piece of the comb broke loose. This is about 10 years ago, and uh, Audrey and I both got to sample some of the honey straight out of the comb. 
And I have to tell you, there are a few things sweeter and more rich and satisfying than honey straight from the comb. And I think it's interesting that that's the image the psalmist uses to speak of the decrees that come from God, that they are sweeter, sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. When the psalmist thinks about the words that God shares, yes, his commandments, but also the story that encompasses the commandments, the psalmist says, they are so sweet to me. But there's another image here in verse 10 that I think is fitting and probably is even harder for us, and that's of those commandments being greater than gold. It says, verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. What is gold to David? It's buying power. It's access. It's probably the ability to acquire and even to get greater accolades and to be known and to have power. I think it's interesting as you study the history of the world, typically money has always done that, whether it's rubies or gold or silver or uh, bank accounts. Uh, When people have a lot, they seem to think they can have more. And it's interesting that David says that the decrees of God are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. A recurring theme in Psalm 119 is the same, that God's words are greater than gold. Again, another reason I think that David had a hand in Psalm 119. If you look at verse 72 of Psalm 119, the law, the instructions from your mouth, they're more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Just rest on that for a moment. Let's translate it into modern terms, that the words of God will be more precious than winning the lottery, than millions of dollars. That, that, that again, that's a bold statement. The Verse 127, something similar is shared. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. Or in 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Like the joy that's found in the words of God is is like one who discovers a hidden treasure or gets a phone call, you're the heir to an incredible inheritance. That's that's the delight that rises up in the psalmist when it comes to the instructions of God. I think it gives us a great time to consider in a consumeristic culture where so often we look to things to supply joy, do we find more joy and more delight in the words of God? Do we believe that? Even as we sit, what, five or six days out from Black Friday, you're, you're already planning what to purchase for the people you love for Christmas. You're already envisioning the delight that will come to them as they open it or get it or receive it. And do we see that the words of God bring even greater delight than that? How? How can, how can God's words supply delight that is greater, that is sweeter than honey, that is, is greater than, than pure gold, even a lot of pure gold? Why? Why does it supply that? We're just going to look at a few things the psalmist shares about his experience with the word of God. And I just want to highlight a few of the things that have come to him through the word of God that we might see how and why the word of God brings delight. The first is that the word of God brings joy. If you look at verse 14, 
I believe it's the first time that joy is mentioned, but it's mentioned multiple times in Psalm 119. But the psalmist says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. The words of God, the instructions of God bring him joy. There's something about looking back and seeing God's unfolding story and how he created the heavens of the earth and then even how after they sinned, God worked this incredible plan of redemption that led to the rescue of God's people from Egypt. And the the psalmist looks at those and he says, I rejoice, I rejoice, those bring me joy. But it's not just joy that's supplied by the instructions of God, It's, it's also counsel. Look at verse 24. Your statutes, your instructions, your laws are my delight They are my counselors. The the psalmist gives us this picture of how somehow as they face life and the decisions and the choices and and, and directions they could go, that that, that the words of God kind of stand watch like advisors and help him know how to live and the choices to make and how to navigate their counselors. But it's not just that the words of God bring joy, the words of God counsel, the words of God comfort. Look at verse 50. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The the words of God supply comfort. When he's suffering, when he's sorrowed, when he's sad, comfort comes from the story of God and his words. But it's not only joy and counsel and comfort, we see compassion Look at verse 77. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. That somehow in looking at what he sees in the instructions of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as as he reads those words, as he meditates on those words, it's as though God shows him compassion. God's heart goes out to him. God meets him in his trial. That's why he delights in the word of God. The words of God bring encouragement. Look at verse 143, and this shows up in a number of ways throughout the poem. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. When he is in trouble, when he is in distress, two expressions that David uses multiple times in the Psalms, by the way, enemies coming at him, trouble and distress. What helps him? The words of God are his delight. And so the psalmist looks and reflects on these words given through Moses and says, these instructions of God are sweeter than honey. They're more precious than gold. Among many things, they bring joy and counsel and comfort and compassion and encouragement to me. That's why the psalmist delights in the word of God. And I would submit that's why we can delight in the word of God. Because we have far more than the psalmist had. The psalmist had the first five books of what we have in our scripture. And yet we have the books of history that continue to tell the story of a God who cares about humanity, a God who works even in trial, a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. We, we, have, the, we have the story of, of, of the books of poetry, uh, the story of Job who was hurting and uh, afflicted by the enemy, and yet God remained true. We have the words of the psalmists, the wisdom of Proverbs, the reflective teachings of Ecclesiastes, 
We have the words of prophet after prophet, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel and Hosea, Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. The, the name, all these prophets who wrote and God continues to link his story and show them his place. And beyond these, we have the letters of the New Testament, people who were living and who had been changed, men like Paul and Peter and James and John. And if those aren't enough, we have the gospels that show us Jesus, who is the word become flesh, the word of life, who declares of himself, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. A Christ who embodies the joy and the counsel and the comfort and the compassion and the encouragement that the psalmist rejoices in. How much more do we have a reason to delight? And if we'll immerse ourselves in these pages and allow his story to speak into our lives and to guide us, we'll find ourselves it's experiencing the delight of God's words that are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb, more precious than gold, even pure gold. So I ask you again, what brings you delight? How can the words of scripture bring us delight? And in case you think that maybe this is just an Old Testament thing, I wanna share with you a few words I found in Romans this week that I, I didn't remember being here that struck me and I think expressed a similar sentiment in Romans 15, verse four. Here's how Paul encourages the Christians. He writes, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That sounds like it came from the pen of a man who delights in the instructions and the words of God. And that brings us to the spiritual disciplines associated with the word of God. This is why we study. This is why we meditate. This is why we memorize. So these words can foster that delight in us. We, we study the word, we open it up to read it, to asking God to teach us, to use his spirit to guide us in understanding that we might see the world as he sees it, to see ourselves as he sees us, to see him as he's intended to be seen, to guide and to shape our lives. Now, now if you've never studied the word of God before, Chances are, as you first start reading it and opening it, I'm not talking about an intense academic study, I'm just talking about intentionally uh, reading the word and asking God to teach you, chances are it's going to be difficult at first. There are names that are different than the names we typically um, you know, name children today. There are places that are different and in a part of the world we don't live. There are customs and cultures and things going on, and it can make it feel difficult at first. Thinking about our food uh, analogy, I was reading this week on a website called theconversation.com. Uh, it's there for parents to help their kids. And uh, someone was talking in elementary terms about the science of taste. Trying to help a kid answer the question, why do some of my friends like this and I think it tastes terrible? 
Why do tastes change? And maybe you've asked that question before. I've asked that question. I have family members that love Brussels sprouts. They make me dry heave. Like, why is it that they like them and, and I don't? I have a grandparent that loves olives and he eats olives by the jar. I have tried an olive and I feel like it's making my mouth shrink up and shrivel with all the salt. I just can't do an olive. So why are, are our tastes different? And so uh, the, the author writes about basically three things shape our taste. Our genetics, actually your DNA sequencing that's unique to you and how it uh, creates proteins in your body affect how your taste buds process taste. Your familiarity with flavors shapes how you taste, and your experiences shape taste. In fact, there's some science that suggests that taste can change over time. That's why some of you may have taken a drink of your grandpa's coffee as a kid, and you're like, that's horrible. And then now as, a, as, a, as an adult, you're drinking six pots a day, and you're like, wait a second, what changed? If, if, a, if a kid grows up in India, chances are they'll be more familiar with curry their experiences with curry are there, and so they probably will end up liking curry, whereas you might not care for curry in the United States of America. What does this have to do with the Word of God? Sometimes the Word of God, for us, is a bit of an acquired taste. You may be unfamiliar at first with its words and its concepts, but as you become more familiar you read about Abraham the first time. You discover who Abraham is and what he did and how God used him. And then when you read in Matthew that Jesus says that he is before Abraham and greater, then there's more familiarity there. When you experience God's word with other people, you study it in your life group and among a group of fellow disciples trying to grow. You, you come to understand it more. And for all of us, when we come to follow King Jesus and in faith follow him and confess our sins and repent and are baptized, his spirit invades us. And guess what? He changes our heart. Not our actual DNA sequencing, but our heart. And he helps us understand his word. And so we study that we might grow to learn about him and delight in who he is and what he's done and our place in the story. Meditation. We take a single word or a small verse or phrase and we just allow it to soak in our minds. We think on it, we reflect on it, we journal about it, just trying to extract every bit of meaning from it. It's like what the coffee connoisseur does as they drink a cup of coffee and, or a drink of coffee and they kind of swirl it in their mouth and they name the notes, the bright notes or the chocolate notes or the fruit notes or the, the notes uh, of, of a specific nut. Now, some of you think that those people are nuts because they can do that with coffee, like just give you some Folgers, but believe it or not, some people can, can taste all of that. It's what a sommelier does when they just let the wine rest in their mouth and they name its complexities. When we meditate on the word of God, that's what we do. We just take it in. Take a concept like grace, for example. We launch a series next week called Grace, the Story of Christmas. Because what the story of Christmas is, if you reflect on grace and what it means over a day, over a week, and just turn it over that God would extend unmerited favor to us. God has a way of just 
just having those words grab hold of you and stick to you. That's what meditation does. Or memorization, the third discipline we've talked about, where we commit verses to memory and they're there and we recall them in moments where we didn't even think we needed them. Have you ever had a scent bring back a flood of memories? Maybe you smell Old Spice cologne and it reminds you of a father or a grandfather. Or maybe you smell cookies and the scent is just so it reminds you of someone or someplace in your life. Just this week I was showering. I do that daily, by the way. And um, we had some leftover uh, body wash from the hotel we stayed at in Hawaii earlier this year. And as I washed and I smelled, it was a rose petal scent. As I smelled it, I thought, holy cow. I could, in my mind, see the sunset and Audrey and I walking on the beach. It was like just that scent brought back so much. When we memorize scripture, that's what happens. When, when a circumstance comes and those words are recalled because you committed to mind, it, it brings the same joy and counsel and comfort and compassion and encouragement that, that it did when we first memorized it. And so if you and I are to delight, if we were to experience the sweetness of the word and the, the purity and the riches of the word, let's, let's commit to the disciplines of study and meditation and memorization. And as we do, we'll find ourselves delighting in the incredible word of God. I want to leave you with the words of Psalm chapter one. It speaks of what happens with the person who delights in the word of God. The psalmist writes, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. When you delight in the word of God, he grows something beautiful in you and through you that benefits those around you. My invitation to you is if you're a disciple of Jesus, would you immerse yourself in the words of scripture? Study them, meditate on them, memorize them, delight in them, and bring fruit to the world around you. And if you are not yet a disciple of Jesus, may you see that God is one who can be delighted in, that supplies what you desperately need and desperately crave, things that food can't supply and money can't buy. And Jesus makes it possible, and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. You can reach out to us through our connection card, email connect at lebanonchristian.org, fill out a physical one up here, uh, scan the QR codes that are located throughout our building talk to the person who invited you or, or come up and visit with me or one of our elders after our service. And together, let's experience the delight that's found in God alone. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Father, I think partly the reason why the psalmist uses so many expressions to describe it is that he just, it's impossible with our vocabulary to nail down the beauty and the majesty, the love, the message, the truth, the hope that's found in your word. 
God, help us delight in it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.